Welcome to Screen People. Our guest this episode is an actor, director, voiceover artist, professor, and one of the kindest people I've had the pleasure to call a dear friend, Miss Diana Black. We will delve into the movies and shows that have played a role during the various stages of her life, and even what she would watch if she happened to be sitting alone in a hotel room. Here we go. Welcome back to Screen People. My guest today is a good friend and somebody who I've been dying to talk to on this podcast, my dear friend, Diana. Diana, if I was looking at the back of your novel or textbook, what would it say? Oh, gosh, my novel or textbook. Uh, It would probably say Diana Black finally got her act together as this evidence is. Um, gosh, I, I don't know. It would depend entirely on what direction I went in. And my okay. problem for most of my life has been committing to a direction. I have so many interests. And if you said, hey, if I told you that 10 years from now, you would be a published novelist, or you would have a textbook on the market, I would be like, oh, what is it in? I wouldn't know. <laughs> I think that's about perfect. Um, just your classic liberal arts kid. Okay. Very good then. We will move on. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> That's it. I thought I wrote you a spiel for. I know that. I know that. The the point of the having you write the spiel is to help you figure out what you're going to say. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I didn't know. That's okay. It was much more elegant when yeah, I thought about yeah, it. Yeah, it was very elegant. In yeah. Advance. No, but it's it's okay. It's perfectly fine. I love that. That's actually a perfect answer. Like, who knows? Depends when you're talking to me. So, going now to your childhood. If I was to ask you one film that brings to mind your childhood and the memories of that, what would you say? With difficulty, I would commit, this is an ongoing theme, see, to Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein. Because uh, I think about my childhood relationship with movies as inextricable from my bond with my dad. And my dad made it part of his parental mission to educate me in the ways of good movies. And when I was quite young, I want to say elementary school, he introduced me to this movie, which I think was quite a flattering vote of confidence because... As a parent now, it occurs to me, uh, interacting with kids, oh, before you introduce something that's satirical or a parody, they have to first understand the conventions that are being overturned. (laughs) So now when I look back on it, I'm like, hey, my dad had a pretty high opinion of me. That's cool. Uh, But it was a really lovely ritual where we would walk from our house down into our forested part of the neighborhood over a little bridge. I'm not making this up. It sounds like a fairy tale. And then we would climb over a rather high fence where we were not supposed to be at the edge of the elementary school property, which uh, bordered a shopping center complex. We would haul our butts over the fence and sometimes make holes in our pants and walk to Blockbuster, which was in the shopping center. And we would rent a thing. 
And I very dearly remember renting that and it setting off a whole chain of, is there more like this? Well, actually there is. And so that would have to be my number one answer because I felt that it was a bit of a catalyst for many things that came after. Young Frankenstein was released December 15th, 1974. It was conceived by Gene Wilder. Then he got Mel Brooks to work on it. Um, apparently, the what I've read is that Gene Wilder wrote the original draft, and then he and Mel Brooks worked on it and worked on it and worked on it until they had this. They had already done the producers. They had already done Blazing Saddles when they did this one. When you think back, like what's, what stands out? First of all, it's a really bold choice to do the whole thing in black and white and use the original sets from the Frankenstein film. It gives it this veracity. It's a juxtaposition that works so well because it primes you to expect a stuffy old school movie. But what you get is so silly and absurd and just vibrant that it just leaves you feeling like you're getting away with something for the entirety of the film. I remember thinking, can they do that as a kid? And some of the more body jokes just being like, oh my goodness. When Terry Gar is talking about wanting to go for a roll in the hay, or when Marty Feldman is told to go get the bags and he says, I'll take the blonde and you take the one with the toy bin. Or no, I think, strike that, reverse it. To quote Gene Wilder in a different movie, you take the blonde and I'll take the one in the toy bin. I remember thinking as I watched it, this is the most perfect, perfectly cast movie I think I've seen since The Wizard of Oz. Because when I think about perfect casting, Burt Lair as the Cowardly Lion always pops into my mind, but then Marty Feldman as Igor is just unstoppable. Just everyone in the film, down to Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher. You can't improve upon it, which is why I have never watched the musical, and I have no intention of listening to nor watching the musical, because I'm a purist. Understood. Have I watched the musical? No, I haven't. Wa I haven't actually watched the musical either. You pointed out a couple of things. It's true. It was very odd for it to be in black and white. And the first studio they were working with said, you can't make this movie in black and white. And they said, fine, we'll go somewhere else. And they did. And you were talking about, yeah, the original electrical equipment from the 1931 Frankenstein, which was very, very famous. And it was uh, Mel Brooks and his crew who started looking for the stuff from the original Frankenstein. And they actually tracked mm -hmm. down Kenneth Strickfaden, who was the original designer. And you know where he had it? No. His garage. As one does. <laughs> because at that time, you know, studios didn't just amass warehouses and keep absolutely everything. They probably thought, we're never going to use this again. This is from 1931. I love that. And I love the fact that the movie is one of several collaborations between Brooks and not just Wilder, but a number of other people like Kenneth Mars and Madeline mm -hmm. Kahn. I love when you find out that people enjoy one another creatively and perhaps socially. And you can just see that, for lack of a better word, electricity, maybe you've just got that going through my mind, sparking between those actors in the piece. And it, it just works like gangbusters. One cool thing that I found out when I was reading up on this movie was the fact that Gene Wilder had agreed to be in it, but he said to Mel Brooks, you can't be in it. He said, that is my one condition. Like, we will make this movie. I wonder why he... And he says, there's a quote, he told Mel Brooks, you have a way of breaking the fourth wall, unintentionally or intentionally. So when people see you on screen, it's broken. He said, I don't mm -hmm. want it to be 
you know, a wink to the audience. I want it to be a real movie with natural comedy. I think that was the right choice. So going back to my dad's curriculum of film education for me, when I look back on it, I think a lot of it was teaching me what Jewish humor is. Uh, I am a Jewish person of Jewish extraction as far back as the genetic test could find. Because, you know, when you have babies, sometimes you have to get genetic testing. So they were like, oh, your husband's Scottish and he's German and he's Dutch and you, you're just a Jew as far back as the eye can see. And I was like, yeah, I know. But my dad, I think, wanted to show me the pride of our heritage, not through Talmudic study, but through, hey, uh, we tend to be funny because we tend to go through a lot of difficult stuff. And here are some of our best funny people. And so he was showing me Young Frankenstein, among many others. And I thought about the fourth wall being broken as kind of a hallmark of that style. When you think about in the producers at one point, I think the landlord goes up to Max Bialystok and says, to the effect of you need to pay the rent or you're out of here. And Bialystok looks skyward to God and says, you know, Lord, strike him down. He maketh a blight upon the land. And the guy looks up in the same direction and without skipping a beat goes, don't listen to him. He's crazy. And I just think of that as the quintessential Jewish humor moment. And when I was first getting to know my now husband, I remember showing that movie to him and being like that right there, that's Jewish humor. And it's difficult to explain, but anytime Mel Brooks is on screen, that's the kind of vibe you get. And it's very much of a, um, I guess, the audience being in on the joke. But I appreciate that Gene Wilder wanted to preserve a certain integrity in Young Frankenstein. I think it was to, to the betterment of the movie. Another quote, you tap dance to Irvin Berlin and top hats and tails with the monster? Are you crazy? It's frivolous. That was Mel Mel Brooks arguing with Gene Wilder. Putting on the Ritz. Can't do that. And they argued about it. And um, at the end of it, Mel Mel Brooks was like, okay, I wanted to make sure you could argue that, that you had a good argument for it. Fine, we'll do it. (laughs) I think part of why that works so well is that Peter Boyle, as the monster, projects such an innocence and a pride in being outfitted the way he is. And it's not the monster being humiliated. I mean, the whole um, precipitating reason is that we're going to show people how human he really is. And you can see how, (laughs) yes, he's a little bit clunky, but he's enjoying himself. It's, it's just delightful. That's the other thing about this movie. It's, it's so damn quotable. And That was one of the first times in my life when I realized that if you quote a movie in a public place with people you don't know that well, it can be a litmus test for who your people are. You're right. I definitely know when I'm in a group and there's somebody new, when they reference something or a couple of things, then I will be like, oh, I think we're going to be friends. And that's something we don't talk about that much as an indicator of belonging, but it's really an important aspect of how we navigate our especially new relationships. I love this movie because it was clearly a movie that people thought, this isn't going to work. The movie went was the highest, the third highest grossing film of 1974. Was it really? Mm-hmm. It was nominated for multiple uh, awards. Both Cloris Leachman and Madeline Kahn were nominated for Golden Globes for their performances. It got two Academy Award nominations. Huh. Best Sound, 
which makes sense. But the big one was best adapted screenplay. Wow, that's that's really remarkable, isn't it? I think what I read was the only reason it didn't win was because the sequel to Godfather uh, was at that Academy Awards and it kind of like took all the awards. Yeah, I guess that one was pretty good too, wasn't it? I guess, it's fine. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the movie where they handed out handkerchiefs and they asked people on set to shove them in their mouths if they were going to laugh. <laughs> Because the film was so funny that apparently they had a massive problem with the crew cracking up during the whole thing. So they were like, shove it in your mouth. Do not kill our audio. I can easily imagine that that would be the case. Even if that is apocryphal, I'm just going to believe it for the rest of my life. I want to yeah, believe it. I want to believe it. You can just imagine uh, Mel Brooks telling them that. Mel Brooks is such a national treasure. For years now, my father has been saying, oh, God, everything's so stressful with politics and the climate change. And Mel Brooks is going to die one day. <laughs> it's like how my dad always concludes a list of shit that's going wrong with the world. It's like, and Mel Brooks might yeah. die really soon. He's in his 90s. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't know if you saw that Max Brooks, his son, uh, created a public service announcement where he stood talking to Mel Brooks through his front glass door and was like, please wear a mask so you don't kill my father and all his friends. But I, I feel as if Mel Brooks and I have a, you know, deep connection, but he doesn't know that. Moving forward in time, we leave the innocence of childhood and we go into the rocky terrain of adolescence and young adulthood. That fabled and pimpled land. For some of us, yeah. <laughs> um, when you think about that Diana, adolescent, young adult Diana, what is your movie of choice? It would have to be Ghost World. This one, unlike Young Frankenstein, is a little less well-known. <laughs> to say the least. I think I was trying to describe it to my wife because I was familiar with it as it's a movie from a very particular time, for a very particular group of people in a very particular age. What is Ghost World about? Well, I'll start off by saying how I came to be aware of it, which, again, was my dad. My dad suffered a lot during my adolescence, ironically, when he took me to see this, because like so many of us, I was like, hey, you love me unconditionally, I'm going to be a jerk to you. <laughs> And so my dad endured a lot of eye rolling from me and a lot of retorts of, I know about everything. So I just, I just want to put it out there into the world that I was a bit of a shit at this age. But my dad would take me to our local indie cinema. And this was one of the movies that we saw. And it is about a misfit girl. Uh, portrayed by Thora Birch in a brilliant turn. Her name is Enid. She has a best friend who's a bit of a, a slightly more normal, I don't want to say normal as, as if it's a, a compliment. She's a little less quirky, perhaps, a little more mainstream than Enid. And they're graduating from high school at long last. And Enid comes into contact with this very kind of outsider, lonely, weird dude played by Steve Buscemi. His name is Seymour. And they just have this weird kindred spirit thing. They just connect. So it's about what happens to Enid, her relationships with her friends and her family. Like so many of us, she's probably been told her whole life that your life's really going to start when you go to college. But she's not sure that's what she wants. And she's not 
really certain of where her strengths lie. And she's trying on different identities. At one point in the film, she tries a, a radically different hair color. So many of us at that age are doing the same. We're, tr- we're trying on, we're experimenting with new identities, figuring out what sticks. And we are trying to establish some kind of persona as a cover for how insecure and unsure we are. And I related to that very much. Uh, you know, I was a, a nerdy, not terribly cute high school kid. So I really related to Enid feeling kind of isolated even when she was in crowds and her desire to define herself by liking things that were off the beaten path, because that was me too. I I think that I've always loved things that were unfashionable and old, especially musically, and there's a lot of great music in the movie. And then I read the comic book that the movie is based on, and I just felt like it spoke to me, uh, that sense of alienation that comes with that age and feeling like nobody gets me and why doesn't anyone see me? I think it's, it's very universal for people, at least American young women of that time, you know, growing up in the late 90s, early aughts. The film came out in July of 2001. Oh, geez, did it? It did. Ooh. <laughs> The comic book actually came out between 93 and 97. It is interesting when you compare it to Young Frankenstein, because Young Frankenstein made so much money. Ghost World, I don't think, made money. I don't think so. Like, I don't even know if it broke even. It is this tiny little special film. It's a bit of an oddball, and it's it's very intimate. Looking up Thora Birch, she had already done American Beauty. She did American Beauty, Dungeons and Dragons, and then Ghost World. As few people as have seen this movie, I want to be an advocate for it and say, if more people did see it, they would appreciate it. As weird as it is, and as icky as the sexual relationship without wanting to, you know, be a spoiler, because I was trying to avoid that, but... It's like from 2001. Okay, so I'm allowed. All right. (laughs) So her, her character Enid's sexual romantic relationship with Seymour, the C. Buscemi character, is definitely icky. But for all that, the movie's really beautiful and it yeah. feels true. I'll finish this off for this section off with a quote. It's from Roger Ebert. I don't tend to quote Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert, who I adored and I, I just worship his writing. Roger Ebert gave this film four stars. And he said, I wanted to hug this movie. It takes such a risky journey and never steps wrong. It creates specific, original, believable, lovable characters and meanders with them through their unconsolable days, never losing its sense of humor. Yeah, and I I think that's very much my approach to life is, you know, and, and this may come from being raised in a Jewish home, but there are going to come hard knocks. And if you can't laugh at yourself and try to find the humor in your dark days, then it's going to be really hard to get by. And there's there's just some really joyous moments in the movie, like when Thora Birch's character, I think this is the opening scene, is just dancing in her bedroom to a Bollywood 1960s soundtrack. The movie also kind of cracked open a whole wormhole for me of Delta Blues with Robert Johnson. And there's a song Devil Got My Woman featured in the movie. And just the pathos of that recording, it it grips Seymour in the movie. And I was like, Oh, my God, I get it. 
I don't know. I feel like a lot of times when you have people who are part of a quote unquote counterculture, there's not a lot of there there. But the characters in this movie, even though they were dabbling in counterculture, they were trying to be whole people. And it wasn't just an artifice that they slapped on and said, hey, now I have a personality. I I do wish more people would see it. It does, I think, say something about who I was as an adolescent, you know, that I, I had a loneliness and felt like it was often difficult to find peers who appreciated uh, what I had to offer. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a time capsule. We move forward in time. Diana, the child is gone. Diana, the adolescent has bloomed into <laughs> Diana, the adult. <laughs> who has fewer pimples. Moving on to adulthood, Diana of now, what movie or show represents Diana of today? I don't know that I have a film or show that necessarily represents me, but a show that really captured my interest and I felt I felt seen by it, <laughs> I could list, is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which aired on The CW over the last couple of years. It's uh, the brainchild of... A couple of women, one of them stars in it, and her name is Rachel Bloom. And like Diana, she is a mid-30s Jewish girl from the East Coast, and she is a little bit hyper-intellectual and loves musical theater. So I can't imagine why I liked it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. I'm trying to look for the connections, but all right. I know, it's it's very obscure. I think you've watched it. I think we've talked about it. Actually, I think it was one of the things that we really all connected with, you, me, and and my wife, Shay, that we all ended up, I think, falling for this show around the same time. Yeah, and it, and it, it strikes me as a minor miracle that it even got made because it is in some ways deeply subversive and edgy and... There are songs about things like period sex. So I applaud the CW for having the cojones to put it on the air. I really think that it is a brilliant show. There were admittedly a couple of episodes that kind of dragged where the plot didn't move along towards the end of its run. But I think it reached some really high peaks and was just genuinely funny. But for me... What I think might differ about my experience of the show versus your experience of the show or Shay's is that I would be sending songs from the show to my Jewish friends from childhood going, this is us, because there's a song that is sung at a a wedding that the main character, Rebecca, attends, Remember That We Suffered. I think Patti Lapone guest stars as um, the rabbi of the congregation. <laughs> and the lyrics are something like, even as we get together, remember that we suffered. Yes, the potato puffs are delicious, but remember that we suffered. And then Rebecca's mom goes, the Holocaust, the Holocaust. I hate to bring up the Holocaust, but remember that we suffered. And that was so true. I mean, before I knew much of anything about the world, I knew that Hitler equaled bad because my grandmothers who were always around would talk about this kind of stuff in front of me and they would use a lot of Yiddish curse words, but I knew that this was a bad guy. And then going to Hebrew school, um, around sixth grade, you get your Holocaust education in Hebrew school and it's quite in depth. And there's just, you know, rarely a time growing up as a Jewish kid in America where the elders in your household are not discussing the Holocaust. Because you have to remember, my grandmother was from Europe and many of her relatives were killed. My paternal grandmother never got over her fear that, much like in Germany, America would turn on the Jews. And so there's this permanent kind of defensive posture that I think is 
inculcated into American Jewish children. At least it was for me. I I shouldn't speak for us all as if we're a monolith because we're not. I think that Crazy Ex-Girlfriend really taps into the neurotic temperament that results from that. You know, some of the main character's issues are completely separate from that. But just the idea that Jews are high achieving, that we value education, and we're hyper competitive about, you know, their kids' accomplishments... That really struck me as very true. And there's another song where Rebecca's mom comes to visit her and she immediately launches into haranguing her. And the title of the song is Where's the Bathroom? And I sent it to a friend of mine that you also know. And she said, this song is too real. I can't, I can't even handle how much like my mother this sounds. So just the truthfulness of it is amazing. I don't know if you saw, there were a couple of think pieces circulating a year or two ago about how many Jewish characters are played by non-Jewish actors. And that's troubling. There's no shortage of us. We've been around since the early days (laughs) of the silver screen. So, you know, when you see Rachel Brosnahan as Miss Maisel, or when you see um, a number of other mainstream Jewish characters portrayed by non-Jewish women, it's really nice to see someone like Rachel Bloom, who is what we would call Zaftig. You know, she's curvy. She's not a size zero. She hasn't had a nose job. She's pasty white like me. And just seeing the way that... Her character evolved over the course of the show was really cool. But yeah, for me, a lot of it was just seeing truths about myself, how I was raised. And the fact that the character is so culturally Jewish, but not religiously so, is is very much consistent with my experience and, and the experience of a lot of people that I'm close to. It's like a strange semi-racial identity, semi-cultural, somewhere in the middle, those things meet and they're are a number of things that you can say about it. But I mean, primarily, as I said before, when I talk about I am culturally Jewish, I'm not just saying like, I grew up celebrating these holidays, I had a bat mitzvah. I'm also saying this style of humor that Rachel Bloom is bringing into the 21st century and Mel Brooks kind of brought into its heyday. That is a big part of who I am and what I find funny. That is that is a long-winded way of saying I really dig Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You know, this one's this one was easy to look up because I loved this show. Uh, I found it equally magical. It it went from 2015 to 2019, four seasons, 62 episodes. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, other than what we've already talked about, it had two to four songs that were created for every episode, all 62 episodes. And choreography and costuming and how much they played with genres of music and the homages to musical theater. It's it's a love letter to the theater kid. That's what that show is. It mm-hmm. is a love letter to the proverbial theater kid who doesn't fit in, who's a little too much for a lot of people. I know that I'm not the only one who was told that they were a lot, that they were intense. And she makes me feel less alone. It's also so cool in the show how characters who would in other series be background players get their own moments. So unusual, too, to have the romantic lead, at least in many of the seasons, be an Asian American man. A few years ago, Rachel Bloom got an award from a theater group for them casting a 
Asian American in a typically white male role. He's so great in it. And the songs on that show are genuinely catchy. And I would not be surprised at all if in musical theater departments in colleges around the country, if kids aren't showing up with songs from that show and auditioning with them. You mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier, but they very much focused on female sexuality, even the reproductive system, women's health topics like health issues and bringing those into. And that was, they were considered, it was considered a big deal. And they still had to fight. Like they still had to fight for it to include some of that material in the show. It's pretty incredible when you look over all of the topics that it tackled and how it didn't seem like a quote unquote issues show. It was very organic to the storytelling. It wasn't getting up on a soapbox. It wasn't telling you what to think. The show, among other things, was talking about, you know, how do people feel about when they're prescribed antidepressants? How do people handle it when they have a nostalgic vision of their past and someone in their past that isn't shared? Or the character of Heather is in a bit of suspended development, has a bit of Peter Pan syndrome. And I'm like, when is the when have I ever seen a woman, let alone a woman of color, portrayed in this situation? That is such a trope for men. Heather being kind of a slacker. I just thought that was a beautiful thing. And and that wasn't all there was to her. She turned out to have great smarts and to actually have some ambition when she found her thing. It was just so many things like that. And I thought, damn, this is a good show. I'm so glad it's being made. What I think is fascinating about this show was that it was loved by critics, but nobody watched it. It actually has a record. Here's the record. One of the lowest rated shows in television history to be renewed for four seasons by its parent network. There was no reason why the show should have continued. No. And again, I think it's a minor miracle that it did. And I know that it won some awards and that probably helped. And the CW may have been trying to rebrand and as some kind of like prestige-ish channel i don't know maybe they were trying to test the dark let's just yeah. put something out there or maybe they were just trying to counter the stereotype that cw just does you know fluff fluff but they were also airing jane the virgin concurrently with that which you and i both also loved which also had a shocking amount of depth and beautiful well-drawn characters so maybe that's just the direction they wanted to go in and they were like well maybe the audience will catch on eventually and then they kind of did i don't know yeah. I always hope it'll be like Shit's Creek and people will start watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend during their ample time at home and it'll it'll gain a following worthy of it, kind of like uh, after the fact. All right. To end the interview, to come to its final conclusion, what is your guilty pleasure? Honestly, I I don't feel guilty about a single thing that I watch. And I will tell you why. I have two young children, and therefore, any time that I'm consuming media, I'm being very deliberate about what I'm watching because I don't have nearly as much time for it as I used to, so it's very yes. precious. So, like, yes, back when I was a teenager, I would have said my guilty pleasure was America's Next Top Model, but I haven't watched that in, like, at least 15 years. But people are often surprised when I tell them that I used to watch it because, you know, it's pretty terrible, and it is not feminist at all. <laughs> But <laughs> um, nowadays, if you're talking about something that I watch for comfort, is is that kind of... I mean, that depends, whatever you think. Okay, well, I love to watch things that are food-centric, like Great British okay. Bake Off and Somebody Feed Phil. But I would say if I were in a hotel and I was just flipping channels 
and nobody was placing any demands on my time. And this is a very fantasy scenario because as a mother of young children, this will never happen. My life is defined by the demands placed on me at all times. But I would watch reruns of The Golden Girls, which I watched even as a kid. You talk about perfect casting, fabulous writing. You know how we were talking earlier about how Crazy Ex-Girlfriend handled so many issues in a a really seamless way. Now, maybe the Golden Girls is a little less seamless. Maybe some of the, you know, social progressivism shows the effort, but I'm not going to fault it for that because it was the 80s. And, you know, the fact that they had an episode about Sophia had a friend who had Alzheimer's disease or Blanche knew someone with AIDS or, you know, Blanche's brother who's gay wants to get married. I still find that really incredibly commendable. And and I have a special place in my heart for B. Arthur in particular, because when I was in high school, my dad and I, I know this whole podcast for some reason is revolving around me and my dad. We're going to have to share it with him. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to like that. But my dad and I went to B. Arthur's live one woman show, which was called Just Between Friends. I'm so jealous right now, but go on. You should be, because you know I go to a lot of theater, at least I did in the before times. That was the single best thing I have ever seen in my whole life. It was storytelling, and she had been in the theater since she was very young. She had worked with all kinds of famous people. So at some point, once this podcast is over, I will give you the recording of that performance that she did. It, it's not the one I saw, but it's you know very, very similar. So B. Arthur is very special to me. I just felt like the characters were real people and I felt like they were my friends because, again, going back to when I was talking about Ghost World, I was a lonely kid. My elder brother was good at sports and kind of popular and I was very not good at sports and not popular. So I really liked in the afternoons to watch the Golden Girls and I still maintain that the Golden Girls gave a lot of us unrealistic expectations about adult friendship because, I mean, maybe I just need to wait a couple more decades, but I'm still waiting for, you know, my Golden Girls-esque group of friends to manifest itself. Maybe it's you and your wife and a couple other people. Well, that is a perfect answer. Good. Poor other people who have have to answer that question now. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I have been a big fan of it, and it's an honor to be one of your guests. Absolutely. And we'll have you back. We'll make you do a retrospective. Oh, man. Okay. Um, Yeah. I'll I'll bring my retrospective shirt. I hope so. I hope so. It's kind of dress code required. Yeah. uh, Understood.